Well, good morning. It's great to see you this morning. One thing they asked me to do um, that we had neglected to do in first service, um, just a quick uh, public service announcement, I guess. Um, If there'd be some of you that would be willing and able to help us just to get the chairs. Um, We're doing our carpet cleaning uh, this week. And so any of you guys that can stay after, you know, my mom always said many hands make light work, right? And um, we can zip this out in no time, and and uh, just wanted them, or they wanted me to remind you of that. I tell you what, let's just uh, bow our heads for a prayer, if we would. Father, Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be here, and Lord, already through worship, um, just to be able to sense your presence, Lord, and we know that you're here with us. You promised to be among us. Lord, it's just great to be able to to be still and know that you're God and to just, uh, your presence just to saturate our hearts and minds in this hour, Lord, and be reminded of your goodness and your grace. And Lord, that um, as your children, we can just rest and have confidence in you. So now, Lord, as we open your word, as we look at what you have revealed to us and this eternal truth that is uh, everlasting, Lord, and it's so significant. Lord, help us to take it in today and uh, just hear from you, we pray. Pray for your your empowerment on me and uh, the ears of each here in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, I just... uh, uh, it's that time of year, right? Summer's winding down. Uh, school started already three days in. I joked with the nine o'clock that tomorrow you might say an extra prayer for, for us. Um, I happen to be off tomorrow, Monday, and so that'll be good because without fail with Keegan and Sage, man, that first day of kindergarten, my wife is a mess. <laughs> and um, pretty sure tomorrow's not going to be any different. So. Uh, We'll have to figure out some way to keep her busy tomorrow, but uh, number three is going in full time, and I don't know what it is, but I trust you've had a great summer, and uh, just looking forward to the fall, uh, my favorite time of the year, and uh, just being able to kind of get back into a routine, right, and uh, just pray that God will bless and bring favor into all of our lives through this through this school year and the, kind of the normal routine. We're finishing today, though, kind of what we did this summer, um, uh, this look at these bold um, statements of Jesus where he, he uh, doesn't mince words. He doesn't leave any doubt of who he claimed to be. Now remember, Jesus is... If you look at what he said, you understand what he said, he is not claiming to just be a good moral teacher. He is not claiming to be somebody that, you know, you could go there, you could go there, or you could choose me too. It's, I'm just one of, no. And especially in these statements, he is boldly declaring that he is the Son of God, correct? I am, just as the Father said, I am, he says, I am. It's like, you can't, you can't say any more bold words than that. I am. I am that I am. I'm it. I'm everything, right? And so understanding what was Jesus about, what did he, what did he come to do, how did he live, what did he teach, how did he act, all of it through the Gospels as we're sifting and sorting through that, These seven statements rise to the top and kind of just crystallize who Jesus is, right? He uses these metaphors. What's amazing about this is we begin to look at it, and absolutely it's Jesus' identity. But we begin to recognize quickly that in the metaphors he used, in the pictures that he used, he's trying to, yes, convey who he is, but he's always helping us to see that because he is who he is, this is what you need to know about yourself. Every one of these statements point to a need in our own lives that needs to be and can only be fulfilled with him, 
And so just going back, thinking about this, we realize that really this is an identity of who he is, but the context becomes, who am I? What does this mean for me? This is who I can now be. Because we see in these statements that it's giving us something that can change the way we live and think and act and who we are. And so it's really an identity series where he reveals his identity to shape our identity. Remember these words. Therefore, or uh, uh, I am the bread of life. He, I am the bread of life. <laughs> that didn't sound too good, right? He is the bread of life. Therefore, I'm satisfied. He is the vine. Therefore, I am sourced. <clears throat> he is the good shepherd. Therefore, I am secure. He is the door. Therefore, I'm saved. He is the way. Therefore, I'm sure. He is the light, the light of the world. Therefore, I can shine. And so in these statements, I would love, and I love the fact that I can live with these words becoming a part of my DNA. Satisfied, sourced, secure, safe. This is now who I am as a child of God, an heir with Jesus Christ, and he is my elder brother, as the scriptures uh, uh, kind of portray it. This is who I can, this is how I can live. And I navigate through life with this understanding now, and it shapes how I think, then it shapes how I live and act. And, and that's what he's doing with these statements. So we just jump into the, the last one here, intentionally wanted to finish this way because I think it's just the fitting way to end these statements. But I want you to consider this question, I believe, that is encapsulated in what Jesus was saying in this story and with this statement. The question is simply this. Have you ever asked this before? Why doesn't God do something about that. Have you ever asked that question? I could probably very easily ask you, have you asked that question this week? Maybe even this morning. That is close to you. Why doesn't God do something about that? You can't live long in this world and realize that it's broken. It's chaotic. It's lost, it's, uh, it's dog-eat-dog, it's unfair, there's injustice, there is random evil, there's random uh, injustices all over. And I know that you have asked this question, why? Doesn't God do something about all of this? Why doesn't he do something about that? That means a lot of different things to us. Some seasons of our lives, why doesn't God do something about that relationship? Why doesn't God do something about that illness? Why doesn't God do something about that job situation? Or that, 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 it changes, it seems like, a lot of times. Obviously, you and I have quickly understood as we've grown to a point where, you know, we, we are kind of in charge of our own life or we make our own decisions, that life gives us a lot of reasons to ask, why doesn't God do something about that? It's probably the, what I understand to be one of the main objections of people who are not Christians, who don't follow Jesus. The main objection is, why doesn't God fix? Why does this evil exist? How can a good God allow this? Right? Honestly, I know you've thought those things. Because we do. And I believe that in this last statement, Jesus gives us at least a framework to begin to see this in its proper context, in its proper reality, proper perspective. Um, 
that question could be a series. Um, why does a good God allow evil to happen? And why does evil exist? And I'm not really trying to fulfill all of that, just to point you in a direction of what Jesus, how he responds. You know, what's amazing about this story that we're going to jump into is often when, when God would want to reveal a truth, he would share a story. He would tell a parable, correct? He would help them to understand from a, a made-up story. But this story, I think it's evident from Scripture, was God attempting to help us understand this question that we have through engineering or orchestrating a real-life circumstance. I think also that this story that we're going to, to look at is pivotal in the story of, of Jesus as he is, has one goal in mind, one mission to accomplish, and that is to get to the cross. Get to the cross. That's why I'm here. That's why I came. This completes my incarnation, so to speak, this stage, this vital stage of that. And this story plays a pivotal role. And when I start reading this story, and you can go to John chapter 11 if you want, or it's on the screen. As soon as you hear the name of the guy we're going to talk about, you're going to take it probably down a notch because you're like, I've heard that story my whole life. I know what you're going to say. I know how this ends. But again, understanding what it's trying to portray to us is important. John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. You know the story already, don't you? Lazarus. You know this story. You know what's coming. But this is the way it starts. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and, his sis and her sister Martha. So there's Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, right? Two sisters and a brother. Bethany's this little town. Go out of the eastern side of Jerusalem. You go down this Kidron Valley. You come back up a little bit. There's this little mount, and it was the Mount of Olives, right? Where Jesus ends up being arrested and then taken into the city. Go up over this, this, this kind of mountain. It's not a huge one. Come back down. Bethany's in that area. It's kind of a suburb of Jerusalem, so to speak. Um, not very far. They're from Bethany. This Mary... So he introduces us, Lazarus is sick, Mary and Martha are his sisters. In fact, hey, I want to clue you into who this Mary, remind you of who this Mary is, because she's now become a legend. She's coffee shop talk, discussion, because this Mary, who is Lazarus' brother, is the same Mary who takes a year's worth, a, sa a year's salary's worth of perfume not even sure what perfume that would be in our culture today. I don't swim in that water. I don't, I don't even know what the real expensive stuff is. But whatever it is, think that, and it's like a year's worth of salary. Remember, she's the one who pours it out on Jesus' feet. Well, that's just regular water. That'll do the job. She takes perfume in an act of devotion and adoration and pours it over his feet and causes quite a, a, a startling uh, uh, thing people just couldn't forget. And she dries it with her hair. Remember, it's that Mary that he's talking about. And the story goes in verse 3, so the sisters sent word to Jesus. This is a pretty tight relationship, right? They kind of, I know that person. You know, I kind of, I think probably the only person that I could actually kind of say that about in my own life is um, I grew up in a small town in Iowa and um, about the same size as Napoleon. Um, 8,000, 9,000. The mayor, when I was growing up, was a guy named Tom Vilsack, right? Um, Tom Vilsack was a mayor, um, kind of actually got to know him a little bit. He knew who our family was, kind of. Tom Vilsack became the governor of Iowa, and then Tom Vilsack became the secretary of agriculture. 
And he was for quite a few years. And so it kind of feels like, yeah, I know Tom Vilsack, you know. He's on TV. I know, I know that guy. I mean, no. Kind of, you know, they were that inner circle. I wasn't that inner circle, but I kind of felt like I knew him a little bit better, right? I don't know who that is for you, but we always find somebody famous, and we kind of feel like, hey, kind of know them a little bit, all right? You know, they're in. They're in with Jesus. And so they go ahead and send word. Jesus, man, what does it say? Lord, the one you love. That's a cool phrase, right? That'd be a cool license plate. Jesus hearts me, you know? That's Lazarus. That's, that's the kind of relationship he has. The one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, and this is why it's important for us to understand, that this whole event was orchestrated by God. This sickness will not end, death, end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. I'm going to show you something that sticks with you, that sticks with you. And in this event that's going to happen, it's going to reveal, one, that there's this truth that can help answer why does God not do something about that, and two, it's going to really create a, a scene where he does such a phenomenal thing that the Jewish leaders are going to have to act in a couple weeks. He's going to die. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so the story should read, and so he goes, right? A day and a half, no big deal for them. He walks a day and a half, and the same guy who stood for hours and healed people over and over and over and changed people's lives, and they came with this and left fine. Surely he's going to just go to the one that's a special friend to him, and he's going to make it right, correct? That's not the way the story goes. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he says to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. Let's go back to the Bethany area. To which the disciples respond, but Jesus, or teacher, rabbi, um, it's just been a little while ago that you were there, and because it's a hotbed of uh, you know, uh, the Jewish leaders, the people who hate you, you actually just left there and you were almost stoned. The last time you're there, and it's not been that long. Are you sure that's a good idea? Why are you going back there? Jesus answers with this kind of weird statement off the wall. Um, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is he who walks, when he walks by the night, that he stumbles, for he has no light. It's just Jesus' kind of philosophical way of saying, listen, I'm here right now. I got to act right now. It doesn't matter. This is important. It doesn't. And so it's immediate for me to go. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples responded, of course, probably thinking, you know what? If he goes back there and he's getting stones thrown at him, we're with him and we're going to get stones thrown at him. So they're quite simply like, okay, well, let's think about this, Lord. You know, if Lazarus is just sleeping, he's going to get better. Because that's what you do to get better, you sleep. To which Jesus uh, said, listen, I'm not talking about him getting better. He's sick, he's actually died. And he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. That's an interesting thing for us to grab a hold of. A guy dies, and God is going to use this to communicate something greater. Sometimes we don't realize. And what appears to us on the surface as a trial or a hardship or a tragedy can so often be a way that God is going to communicate something far deeper for us to realize. And he says, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I'm glad. 
so that you might believe, but let us go ahead and go to him. To which Thomas replies, you know Thomas, the guy that we actually gave a nickname to, Doubting Thomas, um, he responds in a way that you would expect him to. Are you familiar with Winnie the Pooh and Eeyore? You know who Eeyore is? Uh, we have an Eeyore in our family, and that's Colby. You know, we tease him about it sometimes, but it literally, even the voice sometimes he uses, it's like, you're Eeyore. It's not going to work. <laughs> I kid you not. Get him to, get him to you know, you'll, you'll hear it. Not going to work. That's Thomas. Basically he looks at the other guys and says, all right, guys. <laughs> Lazarus is dead. We're going back. Jesus is going to die, and we're going to die. And it's in, in Thomas, I see something that I want us to notice about why does God, why doesn't God do something about that? That question that so often surfaces in our mind and in our heart. And Thomas is totally missing what is being communicated or he doesn't understand it yet, which is fine. And no doubt, probably, I would maybe be having the same thought patterns he is. I'm not interested in getting rocks thrown at me. But what so often happens is just as Thomas is is interpreting this as the worst case scenario. And he is already jumping to the belief that God is not going to fix this situation. And he is, as he was so often, riddled with doubt. And when we are confronted with a situation in our lives so often, just as this situation happened in their lives. Why doesn't God do something about this? Doubt becomes a constant companion to us. It's things like this. Why didn't God do this? If God is good, why did he let that happen? If he's all-powerful, why didn't he stop this? Maybe you're one that doubt has riddled your life so much that you even sometimes entertain the idea that does God even exist? Or how can he be good? Or maybe you're someone who grew up, you just you knew the stories were real, you understood. You know, hey, God is loving, is powerful. Look at Daniel, look at Joshua, look at Moses, look at Noah. And you just had this simple, strong faith and then you went somewhere like college or you got a little older and people began to talk to you and they began to say things like, there's no way he exists, he lives. There's no way that's true. Those are just stories, they're, they're made up, they're metaphors. And all of a sudden you're rocked to a point where you're starting to wonder, does God, is, is God really around? Does he exist? Does he care? Is he just an impersonal somebody that created and let it go? Or is he even here? Maybe we did, you know, come from a tadpole uh, billions of years ago. Sorry, guys, I'm having trouble here. And we get to that point where so often, because we're asking this question, why doesn't God do something about this? that our lives just become riddled with doubt. Have you been there? Are you there right now? Why? Yeah. I've been there. And sometimes it's easy to live there. Why? You see, we need resurrection in life. And because we need that, so often we doubt because the life around us is broken, is lost, it's random, it's unjust, it's unfair. And so we doubt. We doubt. 
If you keep reading, you read that Jesus arrives at Bethany. And um, Lazarus has been dead four days. That's significant because the, even the Jewish people then believed something that wasn't biblical or wasn't a Christian belief, but they had bought into this idea that when somebody died, that for about three days, the spirit hovered around and could visit the body. Maybe something would happen, they'd come back, you know. But on the fourth day, you were dead, dead. No spirit was around, it was over. Jesus intentionally waits four days because he's going to prove that he is the only one who has authority over death. He is the authority in this whole matter of life. He waits. And I'm going to tell you what happens to a body in those days was not pretty. There was no embalming fluids. The Jewish people simply wrapped their people up. They put some spices on them and the spices were simply there to mitigate the smell. And you can imagine what happens. By 72 hours, your body has gone soft and things are leaving your body that do not um, preserve it anymore. And bacteria is already starting to... Do you want me to keep going? I'm just trying to create a scene for you. It's not good. Lazarus is not in a good place. And they were familiar with this because they all had to do it themselves. There really wasn't funeral directors. You took care of your, your own people. And things weren't as sanitary, and, and smells were more evident. Smells are still more evident over there than they are here. I'm not going to share some stories, but I could, about being over there and some of the situations you get in. and Somebody that maybe is a little bit of a germ freak like me, Maybe not a freak, but, you know, it was really an adjustment. But um, it's just not a pretty story. And no doubt Mary and Martha are thinking, what in the world? We sent word. We're special friends. And he's already in this condition. He's dead, dead. And it's not even pretty anymore. And we pick up back in verse 20 that if Thomas has revealed to us that often when we're we're asking this question, why doesn't God take care of that, do something, and we end up doubting a lot, Martha introduces another aspect of what happens with us when we go through situations like this. Martha in verse 20, she heard that Jesus was coming. This is so... If Thomas was like this, this is so Martha, type A. Um, She's the one, remember, she's fixing all the food. Mary's just sitting there listening to Jesus. Martha's running around taking care of everything. She's getting mad about it, remember, and she finally just explodes. Uh, Jesus, what do you, you know, Mary's doing squat, and I'm doing everything, because that's, you know, that's Martha. So she actually runs, she meets Jesus, she hears about him, so she just goes right to where he's at. And she went out to meet him. Mary stayed at home, which is, we're going to look at her in a minute. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If, if, if. Doesn't that accompany why, why, why so often in our life? If you would have been here. Now Martha's not like Thomas. Thomas is, just, Thomas is just mailing it in. We're doomed. It's over. God's not really in control. We're going to die. This has all been a farce, and I've, I've been duped. Doubt, 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 doubt. Martha's not like that. Listen to her. She's saying things like, if, now I'm questioning if, God, I got a problem with what's going on here. If you would have been here, but then again, here's faith. My brother would not have died. I know that even now, this is high faith, right? Even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Right? Martha's issue, which is so often 
some of our issues is not that we don't believe that God can't do something. It's we have a problem with why he's not doing something. Where is he at? Why hasn't he come through yet? Why is he delaying? Right? His timing must be off. Or how in the world, if he could do something, why doesn't he fix it? It's not that I don't believe that he can't. It's where are you at? Why are you waiting? Why are you leaving me here? That's Martha. And so often, if Thomas reveals that often we have doubt, Martha reveals that sometimes we get frustrated by God's delays. We live frustrated. Where where are you at? Why are you delaying? Why are you leaving me here? Jesus said this, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again. There's a resurrection of the last day. I believe that. I'm one of those people that believes the Old Testament scriptures. There's going to be a resurrection in the last day. I get it, God, but you didn't do it now. Why didn't you do it now? You raised two other people so far, right? A widow, a son, and a funeral, and he just raised him up. The girl, you, you can do this. I know you can. Why haven't you? Why did you wait? Why are you delaying? Jesus says to her, and this is the big statement, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live. I tell you, even if you die, you're going to live. Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Kind of a confusing statement. How am I going to live and how am I going to die at the same time? When Jesus is trying to bring us to a better understanding about what life is truly encapsulated with. It's bigger than here and now. It's bigger than present flesh and blood. Saying, listen, Martha, tap into this reality that you are spiritual in nature and that I I'm going to present to you the opportunity to tap into a life that truly is eternal, is everlasting, that is not changed by your present circumstance. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he might die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. But she's frustrated, as we are. If you had come, even now, God, I think you can, but I'm I'm frustrated with why you didn't. So often, why doesn't God do something about that? We live with doubt. We're frustrated with God's delay. Mary comes into the picture, right? Verse 28. Martha goes and says, hey, Mary, Jesus is here. Mary is so, it's her personality, right? She's just overcome with grief. She's a person who is emotional by nature, and she is, she, she's oblivious to everything around her. Mary heard Martha say this. She gets up and goes to him. Jesus had not entered the village, was, was still where he had met Martha, And the Jews who had been with Mary comforting her saw how she got up and they followed her. And when when Mary reached the place where Jesus won and saw him, she fell at his feet. And here's what she says, Lord, again, if, if you had been there. Lord, you're not, why? Why? Haven't you done something about this? If you had been there, my brother would not have died. Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews with her because of Mary's grief. They were weeping. And he is so moved in his spirit by their weeping that he begins 
to be moved and troubled. Where have you laid him? Where is he buried at? Come and see, Lord. In these words, John, or John 11, 35, Jesus himself weeps. Quick sideline. The gods of, the Greek gods of that day were known by this word um, that meant apathetic. The gods were apathetic. They, uh, they didn't care. They had no feeling. They didn't feel pain. They didn't have emotion. They didn't care. Those were, those were what you worshipped. That was your concept of God. That's what the deities were about. And Jesus, in stark contrast to what they believed the gods were, is weeping with his friend. This is who God is. He is not distant. He doesn't not care. He's not without feeling or emotion. He's weeping with you. But I notice that Mary, because she is wrestling with where was God in this, has moved to a point where she is emotionally discouraged. She's moved to a point where she's weeping. And I feel like so often with us that maybe the doubt, maybe the God's frustration with God's delay, it moves us to a point where we just become emotionally discouraged. Why, God, I'm just discouraged now with this whole thing. Have you been there? You might be there today. And see, Jesus has woven this whole, he's allowed this story to happen, to communicate to us a greater reality. You remember what happens, right? He walks up to the tomb. He prays this prayer. He says, listen, Father, I'm praying this so that they might believe. I'm doing this so that they might see your power. I'm doing this so that they'll catch on to something that they need to know regardless of life's circumstances, regardless of the way it looks and the way it is right now. They need to know something greater. You remember he speaks into the tomb and they're like, don't do that. It's not good. He stinks. Don't even, don't open that door. They open the door and he speaks. And Lazarus comes out, right? I mean, this guy got to experience, talk about a ride. Yeah, I got to live two lives. What is Jesus wanting us to understand? It's in that statement, I am the resurrection and the life. He is expressing something for us that should cause us to realize when we're in the middle of doubt, discouragement, delay, he has spoken and reminded us that he has authority. He has authority. That what he has done, who he is, and it's interesting, that he says, I am the resurrection. He didn't say, I'm going to do the resurrection or I'm going to be resurrected. He says, I am the resurrection. Interesting. Something we need to grab onto because what he is saying in essence is what I'm gonna do later, it's just a part of who I am. I carry this power wherever I go. It wasn't something that just acted upon me, so to speak, at a moment in time. It's the essence of who I am. And why we grab onto that is because when we then become connected with this one who is the resurrection and the life, we get to experience this kind of power and life in our own life this is who he is but what does it mean I remind you that he is saying here literally that the, re the resurrection is a person not an event it's not Jesus rose from the dead in that moment in time it's Jesus is this he is the one who always uh, exercises authority over death 
He always exercises authority over dead things. He always exercises authority over negative circumstances of our lives. He, he has been able to defeat the greatest enemy that this world could pose for us. He always is that. And so when I am connected to him, I have tapped into something that is greater than even death itself, which is our greatest enemy. You see, it's easy for us to become fixated on why, why, why. And Jesus answers why with this is who I am. When he says resurrection, resurrection is taking something from dead to life. This world has become dead. Correct? It's dying. You realize that, right? I'm 38 now. I'm not able to do what I could do when I was 28. Come on a Monday night and we play basketball and you'll see. I am not getting stronger. I am decaying. Correct? I hate to remind you that. Some of you are like looking at me like, thanks. You made my day. Thanks for that reminder. We're going, we're not, we're going. This is what, this is where we're at. And he speaks into our lives and says, listen, because I'm the resurrection, I have exercised authority all over all of that. And you realize that I'm the one who reverses the curse, so to speak. And I am the one who has the ability to take broken things and make them new. That gives us hope because in Lazarus' situation, he changed the circumstance right then. And I would absolutely encourage you, as Martha's faith was, to always have that ability to say, God, because you're the resurrection, because you've defeated our greatest enemy, death, through resurrection power, I always believe that you have the power to change any circumstance. I always believe when I pray for somebody to be healed, I always believe that God can. There is never a situation where we, we can't believe that God can reverse it. Amen? He's the resurrection and the life. He has assumed authority over our greatest things, our greatest enemies. The question then becomes, well, why don't you sometimes, God? Right? And I would say that we understand this in a greater sense because Jesus introduces an eternal component to this statement. You'll live even though you die. He who believes in me will always live, never dies. And Jesus reminds us, and I want to finish this I am with kind of... Rem- uh, directing you in the idea that the I am says he's this, 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 and this, and it means this, 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 and this for our lives right now. But he also answers the question of is God really in control? Does he really make things right? How's this gonna work out? And why is it so sometimes unfair and unjust? And what do I do with that God? When he says he's the resurrection and the life, he's making a bold statement that he is going to exercise authority over making everything right in time. This world that's decaying 
and we argue about why it is and why it isn't. Is it too hot? Is, uh, is, 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 you know, climate change is a hot flash issue in our culture right now. We're ruining our planet, and we're doing this and that. There's such a big obsession with so many, and all the, way I, all the while I want to say, yeah, yeah, the stewards of God's creation, we should consider these things. But honestly, it's not on us to fix this world. He's already promised through his power, his authority, he is going to take that which he's created that's dead and decaying and going diminishing. And it's actually, the scriptures say, it's groaning right now. Creation is groaning to be fixed. And through him being the resurrection, he's going to fix it. He's going to renew it. It's what he says in Revelation 21 that he is going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And you see, what he's also saying is, I exercise authority all over all of this. I am going to make all things new and all things right. Every injustice will be answered. There is no sense of unfairness in what God resurrects. There, you know, even today as we, maybe you cry out and you're looking at me and you're saying, Chip, I prayed for my mom for five years. I trusted God and the cancer didn't go away. In fact, it got worse and she died. What am I supposed to do with that? And I would say because he's the resurrection and the life and he has promised that she has been healed. She has experienced, she is going to experience the new forever. Cancer's gone from her life now. He has come through. He did heal her. Maybe not quite in the timing that we wanted, but guess what? For all of us, a hundred years from now, does it really matter? All we care about is we're in eternity, man. Did he fix this? Yes! He took care of it. He, he invites us to consider things from a bigger, broader perspective when he says he's the resurrection and the life. He promises something that is eternal in nature. It's a promised future. There's a book that was written a few years ago. I don't know if you've read this book. I apologize for my words here. If maybe you got some help from it. But the title is Your Best Life Now. And I would say, listen... As much as I, I truly would love to see God's blessing and favor in all of our lives and have a great life now, our best life is not now. That's pretty cool. Our best life is ahead of us. And that's what he promises because he is the authority, because he's the resurrection and the life. I had to get an amen on that. That's something to look forward to. But you know, even though... I, I, want to, I, I want to remind you, though, that because he is the resurrection and he has sealed the fate of what is ahead and gives us a promised future, that because this is who he is and because the scriptures say that when we are in Christ, we are connected to him, we get to experience this power even now. In fact, it's the power, the resurrection power through the spirit of, that raised Jesus from the dead that comes into our lives and actually personally, we get to experience already this new life. You know what I'm talking about, right? Because you've gone from being dead in your trespasses and sins to being alive in Jesus Christ. And he is already doing this new work, this new creation in you. And he is making you something that you didn't deserve and you couldn't pull off. And that resurrection and life is already working in us, making and molding and shaping and moving us in ways that it's, wow! And there is nothing that can stop that work in our heart. Nothing, nothing can separate us from that. He's doing it already, and as he's doing it, it's this present reality that we get to 
yes, I've tapped into it. I get that there is nothing that can stop his power in my life. He has exercised authority now over, not over death, but now over sin in my life. And I can experience this new creation. And it's all pointing to the fact that it one day it will culminate that not only is the work done and I, have, I am now the finished product that he has, but the world all around me is now completed and it's resurrected and it's restored and he has absolutely been faithful to what he has always promised that in him all things will be made new that's what he means when he says I am the resurrection and the life And I would remind you today that so often we can live in the why the why the why why doesn't God do something about that And I can't honestly tell you sometimes why he doesn't now. But I can clearly, on the authority of Jesus' words, tell you that he has done something about that ultimately. He comes through, he's faithful, he restores, and he makes new. And that's what we want to end on in these I am statements. Yes, he fulfills the needs that we have in our life now. But he has also given us a promised future in being the resurrection and the life. And you and I not only can experience him now, but we have so much to look forward to. This is not all it is. In fact, this evening should be where our hope rests. A hope rest in ultimate restoration of us, this planet around us. It's him. Let's stand. Father, uh, Lazarus dying posed a lot of questions for people in the story. They're not dissimilar to the same questions and things we wrestle with when we encounter negative circumstances, trials, tragedies. In the midst of that, you answered in this way, you still answer. But I am the resurrection and the life. I am the one who restores. I have the power to do it now, but I definitely am going to do it later if I choose not to do it now. And we can always hope and know that things are always going to turn out. So Lord, keep us strong the same kind of faith Martha had. And know that you're the one that not only gives us this present reality of overcoming life, but you give us a promised future. You said, he who believes in me will live. Even though he dies, he will live. And in fact, with me, connected to me, we get to experience a life of of never having to deal with death anymore. A promised future. Lord, help us to grab a hold of this, I pray. Go with us from this place in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week. Thank you for your time.